On August 25, 1970, a woman reporter from WHDH-TV in Boston went into the streets. She wanted to know what ordinary women thought about the women's strike for equality, marches and rallies around the nation sponsored by the National Organization for Women, or NOW, scheduled for the following day. The reporter stopped a young woman on the street and asked her, How do you feel about women going on strike tomorrow for equal rights? I'm afraid I didn't even know that they were. Is it a nationwide strike or what? It is? Well, in that case, I imagine that I would pretty much agree. Um, How so? Do you feel that men discriminate against women? I definitely do, especially in job opportunities. I, for one, have been discriminated against. How? I've had several job interviews where people have told me that if I were a man, <laughs> I could have the job but they don't want to risk that type of position on a woman. They feel that I'll leave. <laughs> As we saw in the last episode, in 1970, women were engaged in passionate activism to achieve gender equality. But unlike grassroots radical feminist groups, NOW and other organizations, like the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws, had begun to look to state legislatures, Congress, and the courts to rectify the injustice women encountered every day in the workplace, as consumers, and in their homes. To demonstrate how much the nation depended on women and how little they were valued, NOW asked women across the nation to withhold their labor from bosses, husbands, and even their own children on August 26th, the 50th anniversary of the passing of the 19th Amendment. In rallies held in major cities across the nation, activists would demand free, legal, and unrestricted abortion, equal opportunity in the workforce, and free child care. But this was only a start. Why fight this battle law by law, grievance by grievance, when a constitution amended to recognize women's full citizenship could do the job in one fell swoop? Only a few weeks earlier, on August 10, 1970, Michigan Democrat Martha Griffiths had reintroduced an amendment to the United States Constitution that had been kicking around since suffragists Alice Paul and Crystal Eastman marched it up the steps of the Capitol in 1923. The Equal Rights Amendment consisted of one clear sentence. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state, on account of sex. I don't need to tell this audience that the ERA didn't pass, and although many things changed for women in the 1970s, abortion became legal, sexual harassment became illegal, and women gained access to professions, occupations, and schools that had previously been closed to them, after almost 15 years of activism, the battle for ERA was all but lost, and gender bias remained rampant. Here's media titan Oprah Winfrey talking about how she experienced male attitudes towards the value of her work as a young broadcaster. It was 1980. I was getting paid $22,000, and the guy who I was co-anchoring with was getting paid 50. So I went into my boss, and I said, he's getting paid a lot more money than I'm getting paid. And you know what my boss said? Why should you make that much money? In 1980, he said, why should you make that much money? He said, do, he, he has kids. Do you have kids? And I said, no. Do you have a house? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, so, so tell me why you need the same amount of money. And I said, well, because we're doing the same job. He says, I don't think so. 
And so I thought, mm, I'll show you. We became a syndicated show in 1986. So I went into the bosses and I said, my team, they need to make more money. And the boss at the time said, why? They're all girls. That moment in the office, that was a deciding factor for me. I came back and said, look, I want to I wanna own my own show and I want to take the risk of owning my own show so that I will be the one to say who gets what paycheck. Oprah was, of course, both African-American and a woman. Although black Americans had recourse to laws that protected them from racial discrimination, it remained perfectly legal and, as you just heard, acceptable to discriminate against her on the grounds of gender. Oprah chose to become an entrepreneur, building a multi-billion dollar media empire, but other women looked to now to defend them. Although the organization had dedicated itself to the fight for ERA to the point of near bankruptcy, during that campaign, NOW had become a feminist institution where cross-cutting forms of discrimination by gender, race, sexuality, ability, class, and immigration status were forged into a bigger fight for social justice. Founded in 1966 by a diverse group of dedicated activists that included attorney Pauli Murray, journalist Betty Friedan, politician Shirley Chisholm, labor organizer Eileen Hernandez, and historian Caroline Ware, NOW's loose, networked, chapter-style organizational structure brought diverse women across the United States together under a single umbrella to fight for their rights. It's an important story, not just about women, but about the difficulties and contradictions of doing American politics. That's why I was excited to see that Catherine Turk, a historian at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, has just published a history of now, from its founding to the moment it emerged, bloodied but unbroken from the fight for ERA. Turk is an expert in the histories of women, gender, and sexuality, law, labor, and social movements, and the modern United States. Her first book, Equality on Trial, Gender and Rights in the Modern American Workplace, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2016, won the Mary Jurek Nicholas Prize in U.S. Women's and Gender History from the Organization of American Historians. And her new book, The Women of Now, How Feminists Built an Organization that Transformed America, is out this month from Farrer, Strauss, and Giroux. Join Katie Turk and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 34, We Demand Equality, Now. Katie Turk, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to join you today. So Katie, this wonderful new history of now that you have written, can you tell our listeners, what is the narrative that this book tells? Certainly. Well, the book 
Uh, it tells the history of a complex and vital organization, and it tries to work on four different levels. So I'm interested in the story of now in terms of individual women's lives. So the reasons why a diverse group of women decided that it was important to organize together as women in the same organization and the various changes and developments and feelings that in their own lives that motivated them to become activists and join this movement. The book works on the local level, now uh, was loosely coordinated nationally, at least for the first decade or so, and comprised mostly of local chapters, grassroots activists who had an idea that sounded like it had something to do with women's rights and equality and social justice, and then pursued that through now in all these hundreds of local chapters. Nationally, of course, now was involved in national politics and various campaigns to change laws, change media, change culture. And the book also looks at the international scale. So there are a couple of points in Now's uh, early history when the members and leaders think about going international and how to connect their struggles in the United States with struggles for gender justice around the world. So the book works on those four different levels to tell the long story of this complex and foundational organization. In terms of the arc of change that the book traces, well, it starts with three different women and their lives, but the real action in the book starts with Now's founding in 1966. It's really a handful of seasoned activists from the civil rights and labor movements, as well as educational institutions and politics and public relations who decided that women needed to come together as a sex, of course, with male allies included, to organize and pressure for the kinds of changes that the civil rights movement was beginning to win on behalf of African Americans. And so the book tells the story of now, again, founded in 1966, and it's still very vital and present on the feminist and political scenes today, and examines the organization on those various levels that I described. So keeping an eye on the major turning points in the organization, its growth, and sometimes its shrinkage, but also its place on the national scene. So always with an eye to shifts in the broader political and cultural context. And often our idea about the history of the women's movement sort of uncomfortably merges the grassroots women's liberation movement with the emergence of more formal organizations like now, which also have a grassroots component. One of the things I really learned from your book is that one key distinction between these two groups of women who overlap and move in and out of each other's organizations is that the grassroots movement really didn't care what happened to men. That was just not the issue. Whereas now keeps that kind of on the front burner all the time. Can you explain that difference? That's really interesting. And, you know, an angle of the story that I don't think I had ever articulated as clearly as you just did. I mean, one tension that your question gets at is that what now was, was always up for grabs. It was always contested. And part of what made now so vital and energetic and enduring is the kind of openness of its agenda that a lot of different women and also men could bring their ideas to the organization and pursue their definitions of feminism through it. The founders of NOW, I mean, Betty Friedan um, in particular, were very interested in 
this organization being open to men and welcoming of men and also having men in prominent roles. And I think that was a reflection of this mid-60s moment of the place of feminism in the broader political imagination. Uh, It was not yet a mainstream movement or idea. And a lot of the mainstreaming of feminism that we've seen since is a result of now's activism and insistence that gender equality is, you know, is, is an American ideal. It's co- it should be a common idea. It's not a joke. But so those mi- mostly middle-aged, mostly, mostly white, mostly professional women were very interested in being taken seriously and having their movement not be dismissed as anti-man. And so they go out and find prominent men to serve on now's national board and even convince a man to be uh, an early vice president of the organization. But yeah, as you see chapters bubbling up and starting to bring their own ideas of what feminism should be and the issues that they want to work on to the organization, you see the development of consciousness raising through now. And in particular, chapters in New York and LA. Members don't really want the men there for the consciousness raising because they want to talk about the men and develop leadership potential and and share among themselves. So I mean, I think the book talks a little bit about different chapters' efforts to incorporate men or to kind of keep men on the margins. And, you know, like like many things with now, it's it's complicated because it was such a complex and thriving and locally specific organization. But yeah, writing the part about the men was really fun because I think it really it got at a lot of the tensions inside feminism and how some of these women were you know, really grappling with how to live out their politics and how far to take their ideas and what's practical and what's, you know, what's, what's theoretical, what are your principles and how do you live them out? These are, these are questions that feminists today still, still think about. There's a real tension in now right from the beginning. And part of this is due to Betty Friedan, but they choose the path of recruiting middle-class professional women right at the beginning. And that means they get a couple of prominent women of color, Polly Murray and Eileen Hernandez, who are among that founding generation. But increasingly now is, on the one hand, in tension with the labor movement and white women in that movement, and then also with women of color who do not find now to be a welcoming place. So I kind of felt like the Pauli Murray, Eileen Hernandez early stage represented a road not taken. Can you talk about how NOW's foundation really kind of drives the organization in a certain direction, or does it? Yeah, so there are certainly prominent women of color, especially Black women. I mean, it's it's, it's you could argue that now was Polly Murray's idea. She and Dolly Lowther Robinson, who was um, an African American woman in the labor movement, that women needed an organization like the NAACP that would organize for their sex. And those early couple of years, you see the white leaders of now contemplating diversity in a number of different ways. And they're especially interested in regional diversity. They want to make sure they have women from out West and from the South and from, they're pretty well concentrated in the Midwest and the East Coast. So they, they, they see that as like the route to building a national movement. And many of the women and now, the white women and now come from the civil rights movement. So they imagine themselves as being on the right side of 
the social justice struggles of their day. And yet you see a persistent inability to understand that you need to try to make Black women, women of color, want to be in leadership roles and want to be in the organization. And it's not productive to talk about recruiting women of color and trying to bring them to you, you have to take a lot of the steps that Eileen Hernandez is encouraging the white women in now to take in the early 1970s. And that is specifically to make a concerted effort to link feminism, women's rights, to all the different social justice struggles that that women are a part of, but not, that are not exclusive to women. So Eileen Hernandez comes out of the labor movement. She's a brilliant organizer, and she's one of the first uh, five commissioners on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So she understands class-based discrimination. She understands the problem of working women. She has quite a capacious understanding of what feminism is and can be. And she is now second president in the early 70s and is very politely but firmly telling these white women that they don't they don't get it. <laughs> they need to take more concerted steps to to ensure that women of color feel uh, included and want to be there uh, and have their issues at the center. And one aspect of writing this book that surprised me, the in the sort of storied lore of Now's history, uh, you there's a emphasis on the the black women, not only Polly Murray but Anna Arnold Hegeman who was there, Inez Cassiano who was Latina. Uh, the women of color who were there at the beginning, and they're not there after a few years. I was surprised to find in the archive that Polly Murray, although she does leave in 1967, she's back in the Boston chapter by 1970 working through now. And even Eileen Hernandez, who serves as now second president, she declines to serve a second term for reasons that have to do probably with some of the dynamics we're just talking about, but she also needs to, to start her career and being now's president is the opposite of lucrative. But she sticks around too, and she's working through uh, what was then called the Minority Women's Rights Committee, trying to bring women of color to now, but also convince the white women in now that they need to have a more capacious understanding of feminism and also let the women of color who are there carve out some separate spaces for themselves. So the book talks about the white women in now who really resisted the idea that women of color in the organization needed their own caucus, needed their own voice. And so the book tries to show that there there have been these moments where throughout now's history and continuing to this day where women of color wanted to be there, insisted on being there, but found their approaches and their specific concerns and their feminist perspective sidelined or quieted. But I will say another part that that surprised me was just you would see a generation of women of color leave now, but then the next one came. I mean, so there's something appealing about now's appealing and maybe eternal about now's mission, now's stated mission to advocate for all women. And you see generation after generation of, of not only women of color, but lesbians coming to now and saying, you need to walk the walk. This is what you say you are. Don't just add us on to a, your laundry list of constituencies or issues. Like put our concerns at the center. And that is a tension that the book traces. Well, and of course, just listening to you talk, part of what I'm thinking is that lesbians are so used to homophobia. Women of color are so used to racism that actually to join any organization that is considering itself mainstream, you have mm -hmm. to know that that's going to be part of it. But I'm also thinking about Gloria Steinem. Laura Lovett wrote a wonderful 
biography uh-huh. of Dorothy Pittman Hughes. And one of the things she talks about is how Gloria Steinem decides very early on that she will never be on a stage without a woman of color. And it was just fascinating to me that now never grasped this, particularly given how successful Steinem was in navigating a rough political terrain. You know, the story of, uh, of women of color in now, it's not, it's not an arrow that points one way or a trajectory that flows one right. way. I mean, there are these moments of opening, moments of, of reckoning for now's leadership that open and then close. And I mean, one real turning point the book talks about is now's national elections in 1979, where the national conference, there's a quite qualified woman of color running for a national office and instead now elects a slate of all white, all straight women. And this is a moment when the organization is going all out to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And there was perhaps a sense among the leaders that we need to be efficient. We need to be on the same page. This is not a moment to be thinking about diversity and including lots of agenda items. We have one agenda item and we need a unified team to advance this priority across the finish line. And after the ERA is expires in 1982, a new core of officers come in who say, wait a minute, we really need to go back to the grassroots, go back to brass tacks and expand our agenda, build some coalitions and rebuild in, in a more expansive direction. So this was a very difficult book to write, Katie. I've been in those archives. It's very difficult to get a grip on of the shape of the institution, which I think your book explains really well because it was constantly changing and the, the centers of power were constantly changing. But thinking about now as an organization that came to stand in for feminism in the United States... Isn't that really because it was so visible? Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about their media strategies and how they made an organization that was really quite thinly resourced, wasn't able to do a whole lot, and yet they stayed in the forefront of the news all the time? How did they do that? Well, I mean, you can look back to the founding of now. One of the 49 founders was public relations executive Muriel Fox, who was a brilliant uh, strategist and understood the importance of media. I mean, Betty Friedan, too, certainly understood the importance of, as as a journalist herself, the importance of making sure there there were press conferences and press releases and newspapers and magazines were covering what now was doing in television, of course. I mean, I think as the the 1970s progresses, perhaps a, a major turning point was the March for Women's Equality in August 26, 1970. There's a sense that feminism is not a joke. It's becoming a mainstream movement and uh, that reporters and many of those reporters like worked at at major newspapers, right? Women reporters who wanted to write about the women's movement. The major news outlets in this country start taking women seriously. And now, I wouldn't say now is in the right place at the right time because now helped to precipitate this moment, but now asserted itself as a kind of voice for all women as the kind of voice of an open-ended feminism. And also now it, it couldn't have been easier to join now. You could join as you could just join as an at-large member, or you could do what most women did in those early years was to, to just find nine friends. Everybody pays five bucks and you have a chapter in your town. 
And part of the media strategy from the beginning, once the chapters start to crop up, was these media kits. So they'd send, send to the local chapters. National would send to the local. When, whenever you do anything, write a press release, call the local newspaper, make sure there's a reporter there. A major piece of NOW's advocacy was when they would have a big day of protest was to, to encourage chapters to write letters to the editor of local newspapers. So from the very beginning, there's a sense that media is key. And increasingly, mainstream news outlets felt that there was a, on many stories of the day, that there needed to be a feminist or like a, you know, women's perspective. And certainly before the rise of Phyllis Schlafly and conservative, you know, anti-feminist women, that was oftentimes the default mouthpiece for that perspective. Yeah. And it's also the default for lots of issues that fall under the rubric of women. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was in the now archives finding a letter from two women who were living in Oklahoma or something, and they wanted to know where is the now chapter that we can join because there's mm -hmm. not going to be a Daughters of Bilitis chapter anywhere, an NGLTF chapter, and so on. So one of the things that keeps feeding women in is in these sort of non-urban, thinly populated areas, now is the only game in town. And that's an opportunity that I don't want to say is squandered, but it's certainly lost when the organization goes all in on the ERA. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about that decision, particularly since ERA is now floating around Congress again? Why do they go all in on ERA and how does it work for them? Certainly. So Equal Rights Amendment, a longtime priority for some feminist dating all the way back to the 1920s. But it's really in the late 60s that, that it starts to gain momentum. Now endorses the ERA in 1967 after just a year of uh, a year into its existence. And that was actually quite controversial at the time because women in the labor movement who constituted a key constituency of now's first leaders and members, their unions did not endorse the ERA yet. And there was still a sense that the old regime of gendered protective labor laws at the state level provided some benefits for women that a constitutional amendment guaranteeing sex equality would wipe away. So now coming out front in 1967 and saying, no, we need full constitutional equality, nothing less will do, was quite a strong stand. But ERA is also, for now, one among a kind of constellation of legal priorities that would make the ERA and its provisions broadly beneficial. So now is also advocating for generous maternity leave, all kinds of other protections for workers, subsidized or free childcare. So now imagines a kind of legal landscape for women where equality is, is broadly shared and broadly beneficial. It's not just about the ERA or nothing. Now is advocating for ERA through the late 60s and into the early 70s. And in 1972, the provision passes both houses of Congress with broad bipartisan support. And the next step is for the ERA to be ratified in at least, uh, they need 38 states, 38 state legislatures to, to affirm the ERA, and then it will become part of the Constitution. And again, now is not really worried. The state of Hawaii actually um, endorses the ERA on the, on the very day that it passes Congress because the time change works in uh, feminists' favor, and they win most of the states they need very quickly. But right around 1973, 74, the ratifications start to slow down. And that's in part because 
the places that they still need to win are more conservative states or their states that have a higher bar in their legislature for ratifying a constitutional amendment. But it's also because of the rise of anti-feminist women who, who certainly always existed, but were not organized. And we were talking about media before. We're not sort of out in the media commanding attention in, this, in the way that they came to, using now especially, but also feminism more generally as a kind of foil, as a force to organize against. And they say, actually, equality is not for everyone. It's, this is not a benign affirmation of the values we already hold. This is a nefarious provision that will cause chaos in American life. <laughs> the one thing I wanted to toss in there is yeah. I think that the Childcare legislation mm-hmm. is, is an important yeah. thing for our listeners to pay attention yeah. to because that's a really good example of something that now advertises as a universal benefit. And yes. Black women say, well, actually, when we have childcare, it's white women's children being taken care of by Black women. And right. so there's this kind of skepticism about mm-hmm. the ERA among a group that now wishes to consider its natural allies. And Pauli Murray would have solved that problem because she actually is not into the ERA at all. She's mm-hmm. like, let's go with the 14th Amendment, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. very prescient on her part. So actually, I just interrupted you, Katie, mm. and I'm sorry. But <laughs> no, but can you pick up some of those themes with ERA? Because it it's complicated among the women that now wants as allies, which is Black Mm -hmm. women Mm -hmm. and labor unions, and then Mm -hmm. the conservatives jump in with both feet, and things get really ugly. Although I will say by the end of the 70s, Black women approve of the ERA at much higher rates than white women do. So certainly, yeah, certainly the ERA and feminist politics take on a different valence in African-American communities where uh, the Black power movement is thriving. And while, of course, Black women were essential to building that movement, part of what Black power is trying to do is is strengthen Black masculinity and affirm Black masculinity and shore up African-American families. And for, for Black women, part of what they see in their feminism is the right to care for their own families and keep their families intact. And for unmarried Black women who have children, Part of what they're demanding is is the right to an adequate income so that they can be at home with their families rather than being you know out at a, working at a childcare center taking care of white women's kids. So yeah, um, no, oh, yeah. thank you for that. That's really really important. So let's shift back to ERA because ERA does something else in now, which is it's a kind of turning point into making now or at least sending now in the direction of becoming what we would now call a modern NGO or a PERG or something. In other words, they start raising money like gangbusters and building infrastructure. How does that work out for them? So around 73, 74, now is really at a crossroads where they had been winning, 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 or feminists had been winning, winning, and then they start to lose. There are some things that they're not, you know, the the inevitable momentum that their movement seemed to have starts to slow down. And the ERA, which again, had been one among several goals in the legal arena that now was pursuing, starts to seem like the ERA might not actually pass by 1979, which was the original deadline. And so now elects new leadership in 1976, 77, that those leaders run on the explicit platform that they will 
modernize now. They will streamline now. And their argument, which contains some truth, was that now was too chaotic. Now was too driven at the grassroots to, to be as focused as it needed to be nationally, to be a real player on the national scene and muscle the ERA through. That the fundraising, initially funds came from the chapters, so you would pay your $10 and eventually it goes up. You pay your dues to your chapter and the chapters would remit some of that money to the national. But the national organization was broke. And so Eleanor Smeal comes in as now's president and says, you know, this is, this is too chaotic if we want to be a real presence on the national scene, we need to have an office in Washington, D.C. So they leave their office in Chicago, move to Washington, D.C. to be closer to the seat of political power and start to go all in on this new strategy uh, called direct mail, which you've written so wonderfully about in your book, Political Junkies, uh, which originates on the right as a, a, way, a form of um, targeted solicitations intended to rile up sympathetic readers and convince them to maybe take a vote, maybe protest, but really give money. And groups on the left, including now, start to say, well, we need to be in on this money game too. We need to be raising these kinds of funds if we're going to compete. And so now starts to fundraise very successfully on the ERA. And I argue direct mail and the centralization of power in now's new national office in Washington, D.C. in the late 1970s marks perhaps the most dramatic transformation in now's history that suddenly it's the national office that has all the money and is issuing more directives to chapters. So seeing chapters uh, less as autonomous cells that can uh, generate ideas and those ideas can flow up to the national organization and more as arms of a streamlined machine intended to raise money, lobby, protest for the Equal Rights Amendment. So that's, that starts to happen in the late 70s and now is far from the only organization that's advocating for the ERA, but it's certainly out front and now briefly joins ERA America, this big coalition, but then decides it's going to go its own way and, and, and lead its own strategy. And that strategy does succeed in getting the ratification deadline extended from 1979 to 1982, now had a number of really big protests and got a ton of media. But uh, for reasons we could talk about, none of it is enough to get those last three states that they need before the deadline of June 1982. But the transformation in now is kind of permanent, that now is remade into more of a top down, as you said, a kind of NGO we would recognize today. And there are pushes in the ensuing decades to to rebroaden, to refocus on the grassroots. But I would say the, the major changes that happened in that late 70s moment have continued. That's that's set now on a new course that it is still on. And it's why you cleverly end your book at the end of the 1980s, early 1990s, because actually you've put all the building blocks in place, all of the missed opportunities, all of the decisions that are made that then become structural changes. So Ronald Reagan gets elected president in 1980. That's one of the things that happens to ERA, that the momentum is really heading right at that point. And there are all kinds of state legislators who can say, hey, this is not what my constituents mm -hmm. want. Mm -hmm. But you point out this really terrible fact that of the three states that were hanging in the balance, there are seven votes. I mean, it came that close. What would have happened to now 
and I'm just asking you to speculate, which we historians try not to do, what would have <laughs> happened to now if they'd won? I mean, I think now would have gotten a lot of the credit, deservedly so. I think it's hard to say how much the ERA would have done as the Reagan is increasingly replacing, you know, centrist or more left judges with conservatives and replacing officials and federal agencies, you know, more sort of liberal or progressive officials or centrist officials with his allies. I mean, the book argues that now actually had had found some momentum in the early 80s and that the gender gap, which shows up in the 1980 election, that women vote against Reagan nine points higher than men do. And so um, now takes on this mantle as being a kind of women's voice. But they also do a lot of interesting things at the grassroots level. They're confronting anti-abortion terrorists. They're building these lesbian rights projects in different states. They're reaching out to civil rights organizations and helping to build the 1983 March on Washington. But Reagan is so polarizing and frustrating for feminists that now makes the decision to go all in on presidential politics, and in particular to try to get a woman on the ticket, which they do in Geraldine Ferraro, and fire up their ERA machine once more to get to turn out the vote and fundraise for the Democrats. I mean, certainly we should have the ERA. This would be a better and more just nation if we had the ERA. It would be better for everyone. I wonder how much momentum now would have had going into the 80s if the ERA had passed. That was exactly the thought I had, which, and I think you really sort of leave this as a tantalizing question for another historian, perhaps at the end of the book. Does the ERA's failure and then Reagan becoming president and this huge sea change around gender and sexuality that occurs in the 1980s, does that actually make now relevant in this sort of broad-based way that it had forfeited it? temporarily by becoming a single issue organization around the ERA. That's fascinating. And, you know, I didn't mention as much as I could have about now's abortion activism in the early 80s. And so it's in the late 70s, now is actually trying to separate ERA from abortion because they're trying to appeal to more centrist or even conservative women. As anti-feminists are saying, the ERA is going to completely legalize abortion and that's going to destroy families. Even some leaders of now are saying, no, 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 ERA has nothing to do with abortion. These are separate issues. So now leaders made a lot of strategic choices in deciding that they were going to focus on the ERA above all else. And that early 80s moment does offer a set of new possibilities, including being much more aggressive and out front about abortion at a time when you know conservatives are doing the same. So they're not only bombing uh, abortion clinics, but pressuring the judiciary and doing everything that they can to try to make abortion as as limited or you know to eradicate abortion entirely. So, yeah, now does have relevance in the eighties. That I wonder what yeah what would have happened if the ERA had passed, if now might have lost a little bit of steam. Well, particularly given how fragile they were. One of my favorite things about the ERA was that Phyllis Schlafly said, you know, if we get the ERA, we'll have unisex bathrooms, women in combat, and gay marriage. And we got all of those things without the ERA. (laughs) Somehow we managed to get those things. So Katie, why should our listeners read this book now? Well, here's the paradox that I wanted to understand in writing this book. You don't have to look far today to find mainstream media accounts and narratives that are quite critical of 
quote unquote, second wave feminists that emphasize racism, elitism, classism, homophobia, internal infighting, and suggest that this movement really didn't succeed, really didn't get much done. But then to me, there's no way to look at what's happened in America since 1960 and say that that feminists didn't achieve anything, that nothing changed in the 1970s. That is objectively not true. So how did they do it? Who did it and why? And it was not about specific stars or individual women who had the foresight and the charisma to muscle these changes through. And it was not about benign and generous men who held all the power and decided that they really wanted to share after all. This was about women organizing, ordinary women organizing across their differences, doing the hard work of building consensus and forging an agenda and criticizing each other when that needed to happen, but still finding a path forward. And at this current moment, when many of the gains that feminists in the 1970s achieved, which seemed permanent, are now under assault or being uprooted, we need to understand where those changes came from, not to uncritically celebrate the people who made it possible, but to understand the strategies, the challenges, the victories, the unfinished business, to understand that movement in all of its complexity. And I think we need to understand this formidable and formative organization, but now offers a kind of window into the broad politics of that time and the challenges women faced, but also what they got done despite those challenges. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time. Bye.